But we invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament. It is the third Gospel. There's Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find it on page 855. And we're going to be from now until Christmas just going through these opening chapters in Luke's Gospel as we prepare for the celebration of the coming of our Savior in the birth of Jesus, which we celebrate specifically at Christmas. But this whole season is called Advent, where we focus our minds and hearts' attention on the significance that God would actually enter into our world, would become a child, which is what we celebrate. And where we get that from is when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it tells us about this person Jesus. And you might have heard about him, and you might have heard a variety of things about him. And actually, as our own passage opens up today, uh, that's exactly what Luke says, as he addresses someone and says, you've heard a lot of different things, and so I kind of want to help you uh, filter through all the different things you've heard about this person Jesus. But we've titled this series, Fulfilled, A Savior Born, is because uh, when you grab a Bible now, you grab it as one single book uh, in, in one binding, but what it actually is is 66 different books written over 1,500 years of human history. And in the earlier parts of the Bible, we have told to us that God encountered different people in the world and he made promises to them, covenants with them, to say that he would do things in their lives and then that he would do things in the future. So that when we come and open up to Luke, you'll notice in your Bible that you're already kind of more than halfway through that book. And what's happening is that there had been promises made in previous books and previous points in history that by Jesus coming into the world, he was fulfilling promises that God had made. But that God himself was willing to do that. He was willing to make promises so that over time and in history, we could look back and say, okay, you said you were going to do this. Did you keep your word? Did you keep and do you keep the promises that you make? And when we understand the the flow of history, we can see God's faithfulness, not just in a moment or a singular life, but over time and over human history. And that gives us confidence going forward that if there are any promises still in the scripture that have not yet been fulfilled, we look back and say, well, just like you've kept your word here and here and here, we believe that you're going to keep your word and fulfill all the promises that you've made. So hopefully you're there now in Luke's gospel, and we'll read the first 25 verses. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After three days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. Entitled this message, Make Ready for the Lord. That's the promise that's given about this son, John, who's going to be born, is that he is going to help make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. But as we see from this introduction, it gives us a clue under the question of who needs to hear this story? This story about Jesus. Who is this story for? And Luke's gospel begins in a unique way. It's different than Matthew and Mark and John. And how he begins it kind of gives us a signal of who his audience is and who this story is really for. We do that all the time. How we introduce things kind of sets us up for what we're about to hear. So that if someone says to you, uh, sitting down, well, once upon a time, and begins to tell you a story, you know that you're sitting down to hear probably a made-up story, story. Or if someone says, in a land far away, we're just trained to hear those things and think, okay, someone's about to tell us a story. And when you get something that's addressed to you and it says, to whom it may concern, you say, oh, okay, so this is someone who doesn't know me. Uh, they're, they're trying to say something to me, but they don't know me. And so you read that a little bit differently. And so Luke has a specific introduction here as a way to signal who this story of Jesus is He names an individual in verse 3, Theophilus, which actually the name means friend of God. Theology means knowledge of God. Theophilus means friend of God. And so if all we had was Theophilus, uh, as some suggest, that maybe this is sort of a, a general title for anyone who's seeking after God. For anyone who longs to know more about God and is a friend of God, here's a word for you. And sure enough, that's true. But there's also two words that precede that. He says, most excellent Theophilus, which is a phrase elsewhere used in the New Testament when someone is specifically addressing a person of 
political power, a dignitary to say, and so, uh, for example, the Apostle Paul, when he addresses Festus, most excellent Festus. It's, it's a term of respect for someone in authority. And so here, we believe, is a specific individual to whom Luke is addressing this gospel, saying, you most excellent Theophilus. It's a Greek name, and he's saying to him, you who have heard things about Jesus and a variety of things, and you're trying to sift through it and say, what are the parts I can believe? What are the parts I can trust? What are the parts that are maybe made up, a little bit fantastic to to kind of swallow? I'm addressing you, and I want you to hear this story, to know what it has to say for you and for me. And so though he is about to tell him a story about a Jewish family in a small town, this is relevant to him, whatever city he's in, whether he's in Rome or somewhere else, and though his responsibilities are to a totally different empire, for Luke's perspective, this story needs to be heard by him. Because this story addressed to him is therefore relevant to everyone. It's not a story that is only for the Jews. It is about a Jewish family and about a Jewish Messiah, but it is for everyone. That what is about to be described is something that will change the course of human history, not just Jewish history. And we actually see that in a profound way, that all of us mark our calendars by the significance of these events. So that when we say it's the year 2015, we're saying that it's about 2,000 years since these things happened. Well, what happened that long ago that our calendars mark the difference between all that happened before and all that happened after? Well, that's what we learn about as we read the rest of the story. But that that is exactly what Luke is saying, that this isn't just some isolated, you know, feel-good story in some small community. This happened in a specific place and in a specific point in time, but this is relevant to the wider world. This is a message for everyone. And so our expectations should be shaped to say, okay, this is something we all have to think about. This is something that we all have to consider, and so we all want to listen, like Theophilus, to what Luke has to say as he sifts through what he's about to tell us. As I was reading this, it reminded me of uh, being an undergraduate uh, at the University of Akron, and I had a professor there in the political science department who, who tried to make us unlearn everything we'd learn in an English department. <laughs> he said, most of you have been taught how to write in such a way that no one will ever read what you write that when you enter into the corporate world and you're reporting to a boss and you're sending something to him, he doesn't want a five-page introduction. And she doesn't want to hear a five-page introduction. They they want to hear right away what it is you're going to tell them, why you're going to tell them, and why it's important to them. And if you can't find a way to say quickly what it is you want to say, then you're simply not going to be heard. And so he was uh, using the the strategy of someone else, but we had to write our papers in such a way that it said, the purpose of, and if purpose wasn't the second word, we got a B. And if the word purpose wasn't in the second sentence, you got a C. And if the word purpose wasn't in the first paragraph, you just shouldn't turn in the paper because you were going to flunk the paper. And he said, I know what I'm telling you to do is everything you've been told not to do by every English professor you have. But in the real world of communication, what you need to do is 
Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them why you're going to tell them. Tell them how you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them you told them. That's what you need to do if you want people to listen to you. And so Luke is short and specific, but he's saying everyone needs to hear this story. You, Theophilus, in whatever position and authority you have, you need to hear this. The world needs to know this. He's submitting this as a, if you will, kind of an open letter to the editor. Not a private journal, not a family biography, but as a public document meant for the listening of all and the critique of any. To say, take a look at what I'm about to tell you. And so who needs to hear this story? Everyone needs to hear this story. The world needs to hear this story. And then the question becomes, well, what kind of a world is this that needs to hear this story? Why is it that the world needs to hear this story? And as it unfolds, there's a couple of things that are immediately highlighted about the world in which we live. The first is, there are mixed messages in this world. There are a lot of voices in this world. There's a lot of competing stories and competing claims. And so as many of us in this past week were getting together with friends and family, you know, one of the bits of advice that's often said is, you know, don't discuss religion or politics, I mean, ever, but especially it doesn't usually make for the best kind of gathering around a holiday time. Why? Because people have different perspectives, and they're passionate about their perspectives and their ideas. And so what do you do when people think differently and they believe differently and they have a different set of information and a different set of lenses with which they look at the world? Why does that happen? Well, it does happen. We know that this room is totally diverse, that if we simply gave you an assignment when you left here today and said, write down what happened at church, we'd have all kinds of different perspectives. Though all of you are in the same room, the same things are happening, you experience them through the filter of your own life and your own memories and things that have happened in the past to you whenever you've gone to church or or whatever it might be. And so you'll, you'll describe differently what is transpiring. Now, if you want to be untruthful, you can claim things that totally did not happen. But even without anyone attempting to deceive or make up something, there would be a variety of perspectives and opinions that would be expressed by each and every person here over what happened while you were here. And that's the world that we live in. Uh, I often say this to people, that though perception is not reality, it is often the reality we deal with. And so that if you perceive that someone is mad at you, that shapes how you interact with them. If you perceive and believe that someone desires your good and they're a friend of you, that shapes how you talk and how you communicate them. Whether it's true or not, your perception of it often impacts how you interact with them. And that is so especially true when it comes to God. Our perception of who God is shapes how we interact with him. So that if we believe that God is out there simply kind of keeping a list of all the things we do, And as we're sometimes told in a popular story, and he checks the list. Are you nice or are you naughty? Then the way we interact with God is that we're not honest about the struggles that we have and the weaknesses that we have because we don't want people to think we're on the wrong list or that we're a part of the wrong group of people. But when we understand that God is a loving God who's full of grace and full of mercy... And that's our perception of him. That's our knowledge of him. Then we're free to come to him in any situation. 
free to thank him when we're excited about the joys of life, but we also come to him and confess to him the things that we struggle with, believing that he is gracious and merciful. And so we live in a world of mixed messaging. And so Luke has to write this account because there are many different things being said about Jesus. And Theophilus and others are sitting there and saying, how can you know who to trust? Whose story can you really believe? And so Luke writes to say, I'm going to put as much detail as I can. I'm going to write a history here and a theology so that you can look at it and make an honest assessment yourself of what happened and consider it for yourself. What we also learn immediately as the story is told, another thing about the world we live in. Here's this couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth, and it says that they're both righteous before God, verse 6, walking blamelessly in all the commandments, but verse 7, they had no child. Okay, so this is also the type of world where even when you're doing things right and you're living as consistently as you can according to God's ways and God's purposes, not everything then happens in your life in the way that you would expect. Right? Because if the way that life worked was that if you just do the right thing, you get right things, and if you do bad things, bad things happen to you, which is a perspective more of Eastern religions and karma, then we wouldn't read about a couple who seems to be, by all just comparative measures, doing everything right, but they're struggling with something. And that's, again, something that confronts us. Why do people that we love and that are so generous and and loving and good people struggle with sickness and disease and pain and loss? And it makes us evaluate the kind of world we live in. How is there this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who are faithful to the Lord, serving the Lord, seeking to honor him in all of their ways, but they have unfulfilled desires, unfulfilled desires, dreams, that they, we'd look at them and say, Man, they would, they'd make great parents, but they aren't parents. And then you look in the world and you see people who don't care about their children. And you say, so how is it that this person who doesn't seem to care at all about the life they're responsible for would have children and that someone who would do everything they could and give of themselves and sacrifice and and do whatever they could to take care of life isn't able to have it. Well, that reframes our expectations. Okay, so if you're struggling with something and you have unfulfilled desires and unfulfilled expectations, whether that's for marriage or children or job or whatever, it does not automatically mean you're doing something wrong. Because that's what Satan will tell us. Well, you don't have this because you're not good enough. Or you don't have this because God's punishing you because you said something to so-and-so three years ago. Now, it's true that sometimes we face consequences for past choices. But it is also true that we just live in a world that is broken and that is fallen. And so bad things happen to all of us just like good things happen to all of us. And so there's Zachariah and Elizabeth, a faithful couple now advanced in years and now to the point that they have no expectation of being able to have kids anymore. But then we move on and we see from this broken world that God, he works in a certain way. And so we ask the question, well, how does God work out his plan 
in a broken world like this? How does he intervene? How does he show up? How does he do things in a world like this? And one of the amazing realities is that he always starts small. He always begins with a small step in a very almost obscure and hidden way that almost no one would notice he's begun to do something. And that's on the quote in the back of your handout. It comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's just that profound mystery that the God who could make anything at all decided to be made small. (laughs) Really? Would God enter into this world as a baby? As completely dependent and vulnerable upon other people? Is that how God works out his plan? Well, that is what begins to happen with Jesus' cousin, John. The angel comes to Zacharias. He's praying in the temple, and he says, your prayers have been heard and answered, and you will have a child. And so he's told that your prayers are going to be answered, but it's going to take some time to see the fulfillment of that. It's not instant. It's being answered right now, but it's being answered in such a way that It's going to work itself out slowly over time. That almost no one would notice or realize that a miracle is right in front of them. And that's how God often works. Even in the natural world, it's like this. We lose perspective sometimes. But right now, if what the scientists tell us is true, all of us are traveling at hundreds and hundreds of miles an hour. Because our whole planet is spinning right now at a pace of hundreds of miles an hour. And then our entire planet is spinning in our solar system around the sun. So why don't you or I feel that? It's called gravity. But we take it for granted every single day that we are grounded and secure in our seat, in our chair, as we're walking, whatever we're doing, and we don't feel the pace of hundreds of miles an hour suspended in the universe. That's kind of how God works out his plan. That it takes effort on our part to to see. We have to have, as Jesus says over and over again, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let him who has eyes to see, see. There's amazing wonders all around us. But they happen so frequently and so regularly that sometimes we take them for granted as being the very miracles that they are. But now to this couple, they're told a baby will be born. And this is, it it is an answer to prayer, but it is hard for Zachariah to believe, and he is perplexed that this is going to happen. And so, though this prayer is answered, he's immediately also told that he's going to be made mute and not able to speak. And I don't know which is harder, to have longed for something and prayed and prayed and prayed again to have it and not have it, or to finally be told you're going to have it, but you can't tell anyone. (laughs) You're simply physically not going to be able to tell anyone this good news that's come to your home. But it's what Jesus would say later as an adult, that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's something that starts really, really small and grows over time. That by the time you see it, what you begin to pick up on is that God has actually been at work for a really long time. And he's been doing amazing things. And for anyone reading the opening of Luke's gospel who was familiar with the story of Israel, they would pick up on the fact that this story is being told in such a way that, okay, someone's in the temple and they're praying for a child. 
that would remind them of Hannah praying in the temple, longing for a child. And that it was through Hannah's child that God was going to bring about a new prophet, a new priest, who would anoint a new king of Israel. That the priesthood had become corrupted in their time, and the king had become corrupted. And so God worked out his plan in a miraculous way, but in small ways at first, to just bring about a baby who would then, decades later, off in the wilderness, with no fanfare, anoint a new king. And then that new king would unite the nation and then his son would be born and all the nations of the world would come to him. And so Luke is saying, God's doing something. He's starting small. First he's going to send a prophet who's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But there's a new king coming. This world and all of its brokenness and all of its unfulfilled desire and all of its unanswered prayer, God is answering the prayers and the cries of our heart. He will fulfill the longings of our heart, but he will do it in his way and in his time. And so then the question, okay, so then how do we make ready for the Lord? As he's working out his plan slowly, how do we make ready for it? That's what John is going to do for the people And we we already get a clue in verse 17. It says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so Luke knows, not only does he have to give us information for our minds to be able to think about and and consider who Jesus is, but what John is going to do is prepare the hearts of the people for the Lord. And that a relationship with God always involves both of those things, our heads and our hearts. And so one of the most famous Christmas songs that we sing this time of year, joy to the world, let earth receive her king and let every heart prepare him room. What does that mean for you and I in our own hearts to prepare room for the coming of the Savior? What does it mean for us to get ready to celebrate Christmas? Well, we only celebrate a Savior when we first acknowledge our need to be saved. We only get excited and celebrate the news of a Savior when we first acknowledge our need to be saved. That we can't work through the different voices and the complex realities and the unfulfilled desires and prayers on our own that we aren't the Savior, that even all of us together can't just figure out how to solve the problems that we see. We need help from the outside. We need help from someplace else. We need salvation from God himself. And when in our own hearts and humility and repentance, we can acknowledge that, which is John's basic message to the people, repent, turn from your ways, and come back to God. And instead of looking for help in all the wrong places, come to him for help. And that's how we prepare for Christmas. That's how we make room in our hearts for the Savior. We begin to take a serious look at our life and acknowledge that all of the brokenness that we see around us and all of the pain that we see around us, we also recognize that that brokenness is inside of us just as much as it's outside of us. And that we just as much as anyone else, need a Savior. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your great love for us and the mystery that you who could do anything, who could make anything, and who's made all that we see in this world, all that we enjoy, and so many mysteries that we're yet to fully understand or comprehend, that you would choose to be made small, that you would choose to begin a work of salvation in an obscure, out-of-sight manner. Not immediately drawing attention to yourself. And so we do ask that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, that you would help us to make ready for the news of, of who your son is and how he really does change our individual stories and all of human history. We pray that as we look towards Christmas, that you would help us to humbly make ready in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own spirits, that we would be open to you, that we would be open to reading your word and in all the voices that are around us, that we would want to hear most what you have to say about who you are and what you've done and why it matters. And we need your grace to do even this. And so we pray that you would pour it out upon us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.